Oh, so here we are, October the 15th, 2017, lecture discussion number, I have to put this on the board here. I, was, I had big hopes for today. Okay. That's where we ended up. <laughs> you get, well, you, did you get tickets? So this might be 300. So for those of you expecting lecture number 300, uh, well, you were warned otherwise last week. Uh, the movement towards the finish line uh, might be incremental, as I have revealed. Though I'm hoping, and actually, I wrote this on the first page. I, I, I blasted through 14, 15 pages. I really made it a long way. And so I'm hoping maybe next week I'll knock it off. So I, I'm expecting an exponential, sudden, rapid ending. And I'm incentivized to bring it to its deserving conclusion. It's become time to move to other places. And, and people are asking me, and they're also at the same time throwing things at me, saying you can't finish Samson without doing this. And, and they're all right about that. Uh, I'm doing my best. But uh, there's some things that I may not be able to get to. I'll try as much as I can. But it's time to move on, and I'm thinking maybe um, Jeremiah again. I haven't done Jeremiah for maybe 28 years, so I might consider going back to that. Or Joel, and that's chapter two. I'll start in chapter two. I might go back to. I might consider Joel chapter two. They're really a side by side process. They're somewhat the same in many ways, and we'll have to see. But for now, for today, I need to get Samson to the Philistine temple today. That's not going to be easy. I'm going to try. And that can't be accomplished, uh, all of it today, and thus the utilization of fractions in my numbering system. And some of you and, uh, are going to say to me, why not just admit defeat and run past 300 and go to 301, 302, or whatever you have to get to? And, and what's so distinctive about the number 300, uh, they ask me, and, they, and that's derisively, to which I respond that it is the marketing. Duh. Think of the marketing. Look here. I mean, look at what. I'm desperate now. Think about we Hurry, call now. Operator is waiting. We'll have only one operator. This will not last. Not sold at Walgreens. As seen on TV, act now. But wait. We will double the offer by one 300 lecture series, and we will give you another identical 300 lecture series. In fact, we'll give you all the 300 lecture series you want, exactly like it for free. Hours and hours and hours, did I say hours and hours of family fun? Just pay for additional shipping and handling. It's a $50,000 value. It is. We're going to give it to you for 99 cents. That's a savings of 449,999. I mean, I mean, in 99, it's amazing. How does this work on people? How does anybody say, well, that's a $50 value. It's, it costs them a dollar to make the thing. How is it? Never mind. But it works. Anyway, it's the potential that 300 has for marketing. It's a nice ring. And that's, uh, that's been, was my whole, uh, last time, what did I end up in Genesis? Was 67 or something? What did I end up with? 105? I can't remember. It wasn't a round number. And, and, and we paid the price. Hardly anybody wants it. So thus the 300. Okay, enough of that. Before we return to Judges 15, 16, uh, actually, I, I got a lot of housekeeping to do. I need to, actually, some of what I need to enter right into the record is Judges 15. I rushed by it last couple weeks, and it's got to be included. There's Genesis 1 that I've got to get into, Ecclesiastes 3. I've got to do that today if I can. And no way to make these items legible, all of them, and their, their place in the series is wrong past, so to fit them in correctly, I'm not going to be able to do that. So I'm just going to put them in however I can, wherever possible, in the probably misguided hope that it will make sense to somebody, um, somewhere, someday, somehow. 
So let's just start that and see how I do. Uh, Ezekiel 28:14. you were the anointed cherub who covers. So let's get Ezekiel up on the board here. And yes, I changed the ink in the pen. How about that for technological skill? You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. These are very important phrases. These are the, the two that I'm after today. Covers and fiery. Covers means you were above, he's above the throne, Satan is. He's the covering over the throne. The canopy, if you want to think of it that way. He is There is Christ on the throne. There is Satan above the throne. And if you study the Bible, you'll find that the other cherubim are, they're at the bottom of the throne, if you will, if you want to think of it in a linear way, which is completely appropriate. So this is a description of Satan, as you know, in his assigned given place. He was the arch cherub or the arch cherub. He's the highest of all creating beings at the time that this was said of him. And he walked to and fro in the midst of the fiery stones. And that fiery means that they are light emitting. Light is coming from them. And Ezekiel 28 indicates that only light is present. What's missing? There's only light. Keep in mind, if this is the mineral Eden of Satan... And it is. If this is before Genesis 1-2, as is the view of those who hold to the restorative position. Maybe I should explain that. Let me put these on the board. Uh, there's an issue in, in theological circles. How to get 28 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28 through 19, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, not Jeremiah. Had Jeremiah on the brain already. Isaiah 14. Did I spell Isaiah right? I didn't, did I? Missing an A. Isaiah 14. Oh, probably 12 through 21 or so. That should get it. Job 38, 4 through 7. Nehemiah. 9 through 6. How to get those all reconciled with Genesis 1 and Genesis or 1 1 and 1 2. And so uh, the restorative position says that there is a place to put them here. In other words, all of those are solved by placing the fall of Satan between Genesis 1 1. Remember, I've asked you a lot in Genesis 1 2. So they're saying. Take these and put them here. Does that make sense? And that is called the restitution or the restorative position. And the the premise of the restorative uh, view or interpretation is not to be confused. I'm sorry, let me say that better. Don't confuse the restorative premise or hypothesis or interpretation with the geological gap theory that you'll read about that's been around for many, many years, or the pre-Adamite death view. And they put, the, they put their position in here, too. They say there is a billion year, billions and billions of year gap between 1-1 and 1-2 of Genesis. The restorative uh, premise, which actually comes from uh, the rabbinical Jews of the 8th century. It's very, very old. Uh, they say, no, there is a gap there. And uh, all right, but that gap is less or equal to a hundred years. And that conforms with or comports with or coincides with Isaiah 65, 20, which is the hundred years of life in the millennium that people are, have and if they reject God. So it's the age of death for those who reject Christ in the millennium. Christ is on his throne in the millennium. He is physically present. When Satan falls, Christ is on his throne and Satan is above it. There's this physical element here, if you will. At least there is a visual element. And obviously no time to go backwards into this discussion today or again. Except I want you to note 
for today that I have fiery stones, light-emitting stones. Particle light is in Eden when Satan is walking in it. And what again, what's missing? The sun and the moon and the stars were made on the fourth day, Genesis 1, 14 and 19. If I have light between Genesis 1 and 2, well, that's a very important piece of information. The sun is a nuclear fusion device, as you know. It's a particle-based light. It is also very, very rare in all the universe. How rare our sun is, no one knows. Estimates from the astrophysics community say only 5% of all stars in the universe are like our sun, get as hot as our sun gets. Uh, the ignition process is an example of fine-tuning. If you want to study the ignition process of the sun, you'll find that it's extraordinary. It's called uh, quantum probabilities. How many of you would li- rather we just ignore, never mind, no one would rather ignore Samson and go to quantum probabilities of sun ignition systems? One person, yay. Oh, somebody's holding up magazines. Is it about the sun? Oh, well, fantastic. So there's two or three of you. We won't identify the others. But just say for today, the sun, uh, I won't be surprised if our sun is absolutely alone, unique in all of the universe. That would be exactly how God would do it if I could ever prove it, and there's no way you can. I plan on going to the sun and doing an evaluation. No, of course I don't, but, um, but it would not surprise me that if in all of the trillions and trillions and trillions of stars and galaxies and everything that's out there, all that material, if our sun is the only one like itself, uh, that would make perfect sense to me. Explanations as to how it functions are confronted with mysterious properties. You should know that to phrase the subject conservatively. Anyway, the sun and the moon are, besides the ignition side and the light side of them, they're also timing systems. They let us keep time, so they have value that way. And so neither one of them were there. If the restorative position is correct, and I will say to you, of all of the positions as to where the fall of Satan goes, this is the one that has the best defense and the most scriptural accuracy, the most scriptural accommodation. If I had a hundred year period between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1, 2, 1, 1 and 1, 2, and that is where the fall of Satan is, I have light that is not sun-based light, but it's still nonetheless particle-based light. I don't have a timing system. And, and thus comes forth the most obvious of the obvious questions, which is what I have asked you already two or three times. Why did God only partially remove the darkness? Genesis 1, 3 through 5. Because that's what he did. The primal light, that is Christ himself, John 8, 12. He is the primal light. He says so. I am the light of life. I am the light of the world. I am the light of Genesis 1. That's me. I am the light that makes life. And he is non-particle light. He's not the light that he produces is not like the sun, not the fiery stones. So the primal light comes to the darkness and does not end it. It divides it. The light is pure good, says so. And the light is separated from the darkness. Now start comparing things. The New Jerusalem the one that comes down from above. Any darkness there? No darkness. Revelation 21, 25, 22, 5. Christ himself, the primal light of life, is the light of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 23. Again, 22, 5. There's no seas, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, and Christ ends the darkness on the earth. But he doesn't do it at Genesis 1, 1. Why not? So to repeat, why did Christ separate the darkness from the light? I have light, and I have to, first, all there was was darkness. And then he comes, does it in the darkness, splits it. Half darkness, half light. 
Why was the earth covered in, by water? It's buried in water. The deep. Light is life. Light is good. What's darkness in Scripture? Darkness is death. It's evil. See, where did the darkness come from? Is it your view that God made the darkness? Does God make darkness? What is darkness? Some would say it's the absence of particles, photons. If it's your view, is it your view that if you have the view that uh, one of these days I'm going to have to mix the Worcestershire with the Diet Coke? I'm really close because I can't taste any any of it anyway. It's completely gone. I was telling Supper Dave, who may or may not exist for those of you on the internet, I may only be talking to myself, pretending that I'm two people. That could be happening. Trust me, you didn't know my mother. Some did know my mother. And she's agreeing. Could be happening right now. Uh, I tried to eat some. I was hungry because obviously I haven't eaten for five or six days. Lori's been gone. Okay, I've had <laughs> I've had a lot of ice cream. I got to say that she doesn't know, and she never never listens to this for at least a week, which gives me a pretty good head start. All you can want in life is a fast horse and a twenty-minute head start. But. Uh, I just had, I'm starving, so I ate some, some, uh, whatever it is. Uh, what is that that I ate? It was some sausage. That's what it was. So I had a couple of pieces so that I could get through the lecture without fainting. I couldn't taste it at all. Couldn't smell it. Couldn't taste it. That's a weird thing. So again, I'm considering mixing the two because there's no disadvantage. There's only an advantage. This has all kinds of restorative to use. Read. This is, this is, I mean, cures cancer. Buy it from me now. Comes free if you order the 300 series lecture. No, it's fish oil. Actually, it's the same as WD-40. You might as well take it off and spray WD-40. Did you know WD-40 is fish oil, right? Okay. Where was I? Okay, I have darkness. So if I've got darkness, I have evil. I have death, as God defines death. And you can't have, do you have the view that God made the darkness? That's pretty tough to present because God is light. He is always light. Everywhere he goes, there is light. So if he is there, would there be the darkness there? Why did he divide it in half? Why did he keep the darkness? Where did the darkness come from? And again, nothing else had been created at this time. There's no physical beings been created, so no physical beings could have died. There are no dead animals or dead humanity. So this is for you to reconcile. Figure out your own timeline. I've given you something to work with. And you can look all of this up. It's uh, um, it's not difficult to find these positions. Okay, I take that back. The hardest thing I've been able to do is find people that will actually say what they think here. But you'll at least find somebody that will give you what the positions are, maybe. And I want you to work them all out. Don't take my position, even though it's right. And it comes with a free bottle of Worcestershire sauce and 300 lectures. Exactly 300, unless you count. But I want you to figure this out yourselves so that you have it yourself. Okay, next thing that I need to cover might or might not apply to anything. Israel repeatedly accuses God of bringing them out of Egypt into the wilderness for the purpose of murdering them. It's something they do constantly. Exodus 16.3. Exodus 16.3. Exodus 17.3. Numbers. I can't remember. Oops, I forgot the M. Numbers 23. Just to name three of the of those, fourteen three numbers, I believe. They do it all the time. They say that God is a lying sociopath, serial killer, and you brought us out of Egypt where we were really happy. They say, eating all they do. They say it. Look, look it up. 
where we were eating all this wonderful stuff. We were having a great time. And you brought us out here, you murdering, evil, lying thing, you, to kill us. It's something they do constant, not constantly, often. And Moses identifies this predisposition of Israel, this predilection, uh, as testing God. He does that in Exodus 17 too. Israel is constantly testing God by calling him a sociopath, psychopath, a serial killer. How is that testing God? And anytime you hear something about testing God, you immediately make your connection to the New Testament complement, which is where? That's right, Matthew 4. Christ cannot be tempted. Dana and I and Supper Dave, if he really exists, we're talking about that before the... For the lecture tonight, God cannot be tempted. That's called peccability. He is impeccable. Uh, temptation is a mental process, right? If anyone would understand that temptation is a mental process, it would be God. He will not, uh, he cannot, temptation, if I have temptation, then I say, ooh, I want that, even though it's evil. So you can't tempt God. He will not relent to a mental process. Notice how I said that. Will not. And because he will not, he cannot. That's a very important principle. Anyway, why does calling God a serial killer, a murderer, someone who is lying, whose sole purpose was to bring Israel out to kill them all in the wilderness, why is that called testing God by Moses? And immediately make you consider Matthew 4, where God himself, Christ himself, God Christ, Jesus God, the I Am, is tested by Satan and I don't believe at the beginning of that that Satan had any idea that this was God himself. He figured that out perhaps as he's really, really smart, as you know. The, questions, the question with respect to Israel is apparent. They are habitually, recurrently charging God with being the origin of evil. This is what they do. And that is, as you know, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is everywhere in the Bible. I've tried to make that point. That's Clarence Larkin's great point. Everywhere you go, you find Genesis 3, you find Adam and Eve. Someone, somebody here, I'm not remembering who it is, uh, was asking me about uh, Ecclesiastes 7.28, where it talks about Adam and Eve. It also talks about the, uh, the subject today, so I'll mess around with it a little bit so that you understand. If you find Adam and Eve everywhere in the Bible, you're doing the right thing, or Genesis 3 everywhere. And this is the lie of Satan showing up in Exodus 16, 17, uh, and Numbers 14 and 20. Um, So why does Israel constantly throw the lie of Satan back at God? And they make it clear that they don't believe God. They don't believe him, which, of course, is Genesis 3, isn't it? That's who? Eve. A woman. Christ is life. He's light. He's the light of life. He's the resurrection. He's pure. He's absolute good. He's the good shepherd. Do you believe this or not? John eleven twenty six. He says, I am the light. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? Yes or no? Israel was saying, no, you're evil. And they say it over and over and over again. And God says to us in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, What man among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? You familiar with that verse? Also in Luke 11. What do you now know we're talking about? Let me repeat it. What man among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake, a serpent? If you then, being evil, this is Christ speaking, if you being evil, who's the you in that equation, in that sentence, in that passage? Raise your hand, never raise your hand here if, he's, if you're the evil. If you being evil, no. Oh, there's a great word. God says, if you being evil, no. 
how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? As we should always expect, this is a very complex statement from Christ, a very complicated question from Christ. Of course, He's God. Notice that Creator God, and this is Romans 1.18 through 3.20, identifies fallen mankind as evil. You being evil. You're evil, He says. And he also, also noticed that evil men know something. They know. How do they know this? But they do know that it is evil to give a hungry child a poisonous snake or a rock. They know it's evil to do that. Evil knows evil. They know when they are doing evil. Oh, here's a wonderful epiphany. We found out that Hollywood this month or this week is evil. Who would have thought that? And they've been evil for a long, forever. Ever since they became Hollywood, they became, I want to know who Hollywood was. I never knew her. I knew Natalie would. Well, not really. Here's an interesting story. Hollywood is just completely, totally filled to the brim with filth. That's what it is. If you get your doctrine from them, or if you find yourself going, wow, I really like what they've produced, start questioning yourself. As they are completely and totally corrupted and have been so for a long, long time. Not always the case. But as you know, Harvard, almost all of the Ivy League schools were founded by Christians and have Christian Christian beliefs interwoven in their uh, in their constitutional systems. There, Puritans founded Harvard. Didn't work out for them, did it? Harvard is completely, completely, almost—I would say—it's totally, absolutely anti-God. Harvard education now has become what? That's right. Contradiction in terms. I'm starting to rant now, aren't I? Okay. Evil knows evil, and they know when they are doing evil. They see a kid that's hungry, they give him a snake. They did it on purpose. Why do they do that? They give him a rock or a stone. How does, and there are many questions here, how does God define good gifts when he says, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Give good things. A gift of good. Who would give His children the serpent instead of good gifts? Who would do that? Who are they that ask for the gift that is good? Who's asking for the good gift? Absolute gift or good. Who would give bread? Who is the bread of life? These, though being evil, know that God is good, but they place before the children a poisonous serpent that will kill the child. And they do so knowingly and purposely. It isn't a mistake. Oh, the kid's hungry. What should I give him? Oh, I'll grab the snake. It isn't a fair, it isn't Alzheimer's like I'm having. They know it. They're doing it on purpose. It's not a mistake. A mistake is when you add up numbers wrongly. That's a mistake. It isn't when you make an evil decision. These folks that are evil saying, ooh, I've just made a mistake. No, you didn't. You chose something evil and you did it. That's not a mistake. With all that in mind, why would somebody assign to God evil intent? That's Israel. They're saying, you have brought us out here to murder us. Knowing that God is good, they nevertheless or nonetheless test him for being evil. Why are they doing that? Do they seek proof of his goodness? Prove to us that you're really good. Is that what they're doing? No. They know he's good. What then is the point of accusing God of being the source uh, and, and an agent of evil, of testing God for goodness? What does Israel, actually it would be better phrase it this way, 
who is doing this at, at Exodus 16, 3, 17, 3, Numbers 14, 3, and Numbers 23? Is it the same group every time on these different occasions? How many of them are there? What are they trying to achieve by constantly accusing God of evil things? Why are they doing it? Who else does this in Scripture? Answer, Genesis 3, right? This is Genesis 3. Finally, now we're back to Samson. Yay. Judges 15. Hopefully you'll see how all that kind of fits in and why it should have been done earlier in the right order. Samson, at Judges 15, is coming at the time of the wheat harvest with a young goat. And this is not the first young goat. This is the third young goat. I've got three young goats And he's going to fulfill his vow and consummate the marriage. But he's not allowed to consummate the marriage. Why can't he consummate the marriage? He's brought his young goat. Why did he bring a young goat? I've often asked parents, you know, if somebody wants to ask uh, for your daughter's hand in marriage and brings you a young goat, what are you thinking? That's what he's doing. Why is he bringing a young goat? Because it's in the contract. Wouldn't you want an older goat? Apparently not. You have a young goat. No one wants an old goat. Bad news for me. Thanks for laughing. You're slow. The people in your own row went right off the bat. <laughs> Try to stay up. Awake, up, kind of the same thing. I see you went out to get food, didn't you? Right in the middle of the lecture. How, how disconcerting to the people behind you. You didn't bring anything back, did you? Just for yourself. That's right. Knowing that you're evil. <laughs> people are go- <laughs> Never mind. I want the people on the Internet to think I do this to every strange visitor that comes in. <laughs> Okay, he's bringing a young goat because this is how he's fulfilling his vow and consummating the marriage. But the father has sabotaged the consummation and he is going to do what? He's going to offer the younger daughter. Now ask yourself, did you read this and go, oh, this is happening uh, contemporaneously, I guess, would be, or immediately. This is not, this is not uh no one has thought this through. They just kind of got together. Samson shows up one day. He's got a goat. Happens to be a young goat. There's the, he's asking for to consummate the marriage. And the father says, oh, golly, you know, didn't know you were coming. Gave her away. Take the younger daughter. Samson just killed 30 priests of Ashkelon. That isn't easy to do. He's a scary man, Samson. And that father knows that he's coming for the daughter. He knows it. How does he know it? We'll get to that in a minute. But he is, knows that Samson is coming, and he's coming with a young goat, and he's going to stop Samson from consummating the marriage. How do you stop Samson from consummating the marriage? He can kill people effortlessly. And they know it it now. They know he's amazing. They can't figure out exactly what he's doing and they haven't got a full grasp of it, but they're about to get it. Because as you know, he tears a thousand men apart by hand. Hand just rips them apart like pieces of paper. And when he does that, everybody knows Samson's somebody significant. But at this point, they just know that he's able to kill 30 men who are completely protected. The father has sabotaged the consummation. He has removed the older daughter, given her to the best man where she is in captivity and guarded. And he offers the younger daughter in her place. Now remember, twice the Bible tells us that the oldest daughter pleases Samson well. What do you think that means? 14.3, 14.7 of Judges. At Judges 14.7 it says, 
he, Samson, went down. Let me read it for you exactly so that you get it as emphatically as I can do it. Then he, Samson, went down and talked with the woman and she pleased Samson well. What do you now know? Prior to that, it said she pleased Samson well. Then it gave you more information. What did it add? Talking. Went down and talked with the woman. So there's your more information. Obvious question. What did she say? What did they talk about? What did she say that pleased Samson more than any Jewish woman? Because the parents said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren the Jews? Apparently not. Apparently this one that talks to him, that's the one he wants. And I find that interesting. I've very rarely run into a woman that didn't talk to me a lot. I'll pay for that. It's okay. That 20 minutes, that horse, i got a week. This is the woman who talks to Samson. And she pleases him. Again, what did she say to him where he went, I don't want any Jewish woman, I want this one. Reconcile that, by the way. Oh, gosh. You have to reconcile what she said to him with you only hate me because she says that also to him. You only hate me is exactly what Israel says right here. You brought me out of the wilderness to kill me. This woman says to Samson, you proposed this marriage whole system. The whole reason you proposed to me was you intended to kill me or have me killed. That's what this is all about. She accuses him exactly of what Israel accuses God of. Now, did God bring them out in the wilderness to murder them? No. Why did he bring them out in the wilderness? To save them. He loves them. To this day, he loves them. He loves them forever. Samson loves this woman. It's the same. Because she said something to him. What did she say? It's quite common for Bible scholars to assume that this daughter is a promiscuous woman and that Samson is driven by lust and they make the comparison to Numbers 25 and Delilah. But I'm going to ask you, is that in the text? You see anywhere where it calls her a harlot? Because it doesn't. You see it anywhere where it calls her promiscuous? It doesn't. Are you going to derive that from pleasing him well? Do you think that that's all that he wanted? Because it's not. He wanted to talk to her. And she said something to him. What did she say? I keep repeating that. And if it's not in the text that she is promiscuous, why isn't it there? I will submit that the younger daughter uh, is a little bit different than the older daughter. We'll have to get into that in lecture number 299.0044, which will be probably next. This younger daughter is very important here. There's a reason that he brings the younger daughter forward. The older daughter talked to him, said something to him. They had a discussion. How thick are the walls here? I got tense. Does the father know what they talked about? It's impossible for him not to know. He knows what they talked about. He knows why Samson is here. Everyone is quick to ask, why would a Jew select a Philistine? And that's a fair question. But also ask, why would a Philistine woman accept an offer of marriage from a Jewish Savior? Notice how I phrase that. This is the Savior of the Jews, the Deliverer of the Jews. Why would a Gentile Philistine accept an offer of marriage being the bride of the Jewish Savior? The father of the daughter would know what was said. There's no doubt about it. Tent walls are not resistant to sound waves. The father does everything he can to thwart this marriage. He does not want his daughter to be saved by the Jewish deliverer. And he's going to kill his daughter to stop her. The one that's going to hate her, the one that's going to kill her, is in fact her own father, not the one who wants to bring the goat. 
consummate the marriage. That's why he says, I will be blameless now. Samson says that. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistine. I'm going to kill as many Philistines as I can, and I will be blameless for doing it. And he did. Ripped them to pieces, as you know, like he did the lion. So this father intended to kill his daughter to stop her from accepting the hand of the deliverer of Israel in marriage. He will, and he did, give her to a murderer, to a killer, and he will take from her hand that which is good and place in her hand, or place her hand in the grasp of a poisonous snake. If you attended last week and remained mostly awake, awake is a relative term, especially the case at beautiful downtown Cliffside. I have low expectations of consciousness here. But if you were here last week, you might remember I asked within the context of Samson's portrayal, his representation of Christ, because that is what he did, what he does. Who is this oldest daughter? Who is she? Is she the bride of Christ, which would be the church? Or is she the wife of YHVH, the wife of God, the nation of Israel? Or is she both? Because she's very, very mysterious, enigmatic. It looks as though she is alternating between each. And I should expect that. I've said to you many times, I hope I have, if you can work your way through Samson, um, almost everything else in the Old Testament just lays out. It becomes really, uh, I don't know what the word would be, it, it just becomes logical. Because if you find Christ in Samson, and you find everything that's in Samson. And if you're searching for Christ, searching for Christ elsewhere just becomes a joy. Is she both? Is she alternating between uh, the church and Israel? In which case, where is she the church and where is she Israel? And if she is doing that, this would be called the Hebrew law or the Hebrew principle of double reference, which means that I have two events Blended into one picture, the famous place where this is mostly depicted is seven of the seventh chapter of Isaiah, verses 13 through 17. That's where most scholars point to the Hebrew law of double reference. The Bible is written according to, I see you, thank you. The Bible is written in, in, uh, by Hebrews, and they do it by Hebrew systems. And the Hebrews have this system that they use. One of those is double reference. They do not, uh, most do not believe in double fulfillment. I think that uh, there are places of double fulfillment, but I don't want to get an argument about that now. Double reference means that two events are blended into one, uh, into one subject, if you will. For example, Isaiah 7, I have the child, you know the verse, a virgin, a child will be born, it's in the song, right? When it speaks of that, that's verse 14. That is Christ. There's no question about it. Two verses later, it says the child will be in a certain position when certain prophecies are fulfilled. That is not Christ there. That is Isaiah's son. So at 14, it's Christ. At 16, it's the son of Isaiah. That's called double reference. i got two verses literally right next to each other. And the word son is used in both verses, and it's a different person. And I have long presented, as you know, Psalm 22 is the foremost example of Hebrew double reference that is known, um, known by most, but no one seems to understand Psalm 22. They think that Christ is speaking about himself there, and he is not. Psalm 22 is mostly Israel, especially Israel at 22.1. It's not Christ. When Christ is on the cross and says, myself, myself, why have I forsaken myself? He's not speaking about himself. I'll do it better. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he's talking about himself, that makes no sense. He's not. That is something that Israel screams at, in, the, uh, at the, in the tribulation. So Psalm 22 is mostly Israel. You just go by verse by verse, but then you get to that crimson worm. That's Christ. 
when he's surrounded, when they're surrounded and they're being torn to pieces, that's not Christ. Christ can't be torn to pieces. He's omnipotent God. That's Israel. So verse by verse, work your way through Psalm 22. What is Christ and what is Israel? There's just a few verses applicable to Christ. So Samson, here's the problem with Samson. Samson and the oldest daughter both seem to oscillate, moving from one portraiture to another. The modulation, I was listening to the music today. It shifts. So this, this is very troubling. It's particularly troubling for those who study Samson. If you don't apply the Hebrew methodology of double reference to Judges 13 through 16, the chances of misunderstanding it just explode. Anyway, we must move forward. So just one more consideration. The oldest daughter was married first. So I have an older woman, and I have a younger woman. Two women, women, a first woman and a second woman. Got all of that? Now, here's Judges 16. I'm going to read it. I've got to go fast. Now, after he killed a thousand people, first he tears them to pieces, and then he kills a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. How's the Philistine army doing now? He's just wiping them out. How many do you think there are? How many fought uh, uh, Sam Houston and, uh, can't do it, Santana? How many fought in that battle that freed Texas, do you know? I think Sam Houston maybe had 1,500 men. Uh, Santana had maybe three, 4,000. How many do you think the Philistines had? Because they got 2,000 less right now. After Samson does that, now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there. And now he's, he's going after a prostitute and went into her. Notice the language. No talking here. No pleasing him well. When the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. Do they know that Samson has come here? Yes. What are they thinking? Oh, my goodness, he's going to kill another thousand of us and nothing can do to stop him. They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. No, you won't. Ask this question. Who can kill Samson? The answer is nobody. He has to give his own life up, which is what he does. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors. Notice what time he's coming. He's coming at midnight. Opens the door of the gate of the city. And the two gold posts pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, carried them uh, 37 miles, is the popular belief in Jewish history, to the top of the hill and threw them down. Afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. So now we've got him... See, I have a woman that he loves, I have a prostitute, and now I have another woman that he loves. And the lords of the Philistines, remember there's five lords in the Philistine government system, came up to her and said to her, entice him and find out where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Or what? Yes, that's, I said it right. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, which are made out of animal, um, mostly ligaments, right? And not dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings. Again, they're going to give her 1,100 pieces of gold, right? No, 1,100 pieces of <coughs> silver. All five of them are going to bring in that. So she's going to have some silver. All she has to do is what? Betray? No, she didn't betray him. He knows what she's on. She's got to deliver the, the Savior of Israel. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried. Do you think Samson figured out where she got them? 
Come on, of course he did. And she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, the Philistines are among I got men in the room. What do we call these guys? Idiots. These are the dumbest people in the Bible right here. There's no doubt about it. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when he touches it as he touches fire. What did he do to the guys in the room? He tore them to pieces. Who's volunteering for this job? Does this remind you of the captains and Elijah? I hope it does. Then Delilah said to Samson, look, clean the mess up. No, she doesn't say that. You have mocked me and told me lies. Why did he mock her and tell her lies? Because he knew what she was doing. He knew where the bowstrings came from. Complete control of it. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes. This is the second time the new ropes thing went. You'd think they wouldn't know. Come on. If I'm in the Philistine group that has to take this guy out, and he said, well, okay, bowstrings didn't work. Next, guys, you come in, you hide in the room. He'll never see you. And we're going to go with the new ropes again. What do you think? Well, he killed a thousand people with the new ropes last time. I think I'd say, well, let's, let's try concrete. That'd be my method. Wouldn't work, though. If they bind me securely with new ropes, there's a contradiction. That have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you. New Philistines. Samson and men were lying in wait, staying in the room. So this... Lack of intelligence is contagious. But he broke them off his arms like a thread and slaughtered all the men. Why doesn't the Bible tell you that? Because it thinks that you already have figured that out. and doesn't want to insult you. Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks on my head into, into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep, pulled out of the batten and the web from the loom, and killed all the other men. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you? This is almost now we're back to the first woman, aren't we? When your heart is not with me, you have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. So another secret. And he revealed his secret to the first woman that he loved, didn't he? And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. So now he's going to tell her. When he does, he knows what's going to happen. And he told her, her all his, and he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her with all his heart, she sent and called up for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. How much did it take for her to convince them to do this? How many men are in there? So the lords of the Philistines, there's five lords, right, came up to her and brought the money in their hands. He's seeing the money, yeah. And then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man who had had him shave off, called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. So he probably did not know that she had shaved him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair on his head began to grow again. Oh boy. What made him tell this woman who who mocked him, who tormented him? And I know that I've got to revisit the capture and delivery of Samson by the Israelites. I know that I've got to go over these new ropes. 
I know we've got to talk to swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. He made the Jews promise they wouldn't kill him because the Jews couldn't kill him. Why did he do that? We're going to need to to begin there to resolve the new ropes. I've got all of that, so don't think I'm avoiding it. Okay. Samson has to this point pretty much torn to pieces uh, a large contingent of the Philistine infantry doing great damage to their ability to control Israel. He's, he's pretty much freed Israel from them by himself. He's fulfilled the prophecy he has without any assistance. He's alone doing this, delivering the nation of Israel from the grasp of the Philistines. And then he rips apart the gates of Gaza. He carries them away, casts them down where they're irretrievable, doing more damage. The captives of Gaza or Gaza are now free. They run off, get away from the Philistines. And now he goes to Gaza to see a harlot, a prostitute. And Samson is known. Everybody knows him now. And he's unmatched in all of history for physical strength and power. The secret of which the Philistines cannot explain. They cannot understand how this man is doing what he's doing. The Philistines never considered that it's connected to his Nazaretic vow or his oath. Or that it has a supernatural source. Why don't they reason that Samson has been given this power by God himself? Why don't they say that? Wouldn't you say that? This guy's tearing people apart, lifting off gates and running off 40 miles almost, throwing them on. Wouldn't you say, hey, this is not steroids. This guy's, this is, nobody is like him ever in all of history. Nobody has done what he's done. Even come close. Why didn't they say this is God? What if they say this is God that's doing this? What's that mean? It means that a Philistine isn't in a very good spot. Their gods don't look so good. He's a tremendous testimony. If you can see what he does, you know that's God. That's evidence that is undeniable. It is obvious that the Philistines have no inclination, no ability to see that Samson is the recipient of supernatural strength and they don't want to believe it's God. They are blind to the obvious and intentionally blind. Sounds like evolutionary theory to me. Anyway, Israel goes to Gaza to seek the harlot. See what I did there? Or perhaps you would prefer, Samson goes to fornicate with the great harlot, the mother of harlots, the great whore of Revelation 17. Israel goes towards the harlot. Israel has a long history of prostitution, seeking out paganism, loving wickedness. Samson, Israel, loves a woman, Delilah, who promises to deliver Samson for silver to the five rulers of the Philistines. And they offer her a great sum, riches, if only she can learn the secret to the mystery of Israel. Or, in this case, Samson. What is the mystery of Israel? Israel today is what? A huge, powerful, muscular nation with tremendous resources. No. Tiny little nation. Completely surrounded and it's seemingly defenseless. And it's surrounded by those who are filled with hate that deny any godliness at all in the in the resurrection, or if you will, the existence of Israel. And those people are singularly focused on Israel's annihilation at any cost. They'll kill their own people to kill Israel. But Israel, though blind, is regrowing its hair. Returning to its Nazaritic vow, separating from the world being restored to service to the true God, Jesus Christ, the I Am. Ezekiel 38, as you know, the enemies of Christ lie in wait. When they believe Israel is bound and helpless, they're going to attack. And God will do what? Slaughter them all. Final thought. The wicked woman, Delilah, torments Israel and Samson. This is Genesis 3 in an odd form here. Those of you who are asking me about Ecclesiastes 
Let me do that really fast. Gosh, because I promised I would. That's that's right here. Uh, I never find Ecclesiastes when I need to. There it is. 728. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and death and nets. That's Delilah, whose hands are fetters, who pleases... He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I have found, said the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this is only I have found, that God made man upright. What's he saying? The only thing he found, if he finds an upright man, what's the reason? God has made him upright. But a woman among all these I have not found. What's the obvious question? Who's the all these? The solution to that is here in Judges 16. Wicked woman Delilah torments Israel, torments Samson, when she has removed removed him from his vow. When Samson has chosen the whore over Christ, he has no power and he's blinded. And the world celebrates that. They're merry. They're joyful. For centuries now, they have celebrated the blindness of Israel. And then in 1948 and 49, what has happened? Israel, grinding for centuries, is now regrowing its hair. Here they come. Hair's coming back. 1967, more hair. 1972, more hair. The hair of Samson is regrowing. Soon the cry from the blinded Israel will be exactly what Samson says. It will be word for word. Let me find it for you because it's so amazing. Oh, Lord God, remember me, I pray. Oh, God, that we may take vengeance for our blindness. That's what Israel will say. God did not forsake Samson. For goodness sakes, he's on the gift. Um, he's on the list of the most faithful in all of history. Hebrews 11.32. And he will not forsake his nation of Israel. Okay. Next week. Try to clean that big mess up. <laughs> 